Welcome to Beyond the Entertainment, where we take a look at the lives of those who entertain us. I'm talking about the tragedies, scandals, and crimes committed by them or to them. No one is off limits. We're going to talk about everyone from sports entertainers, Hollywood, YouTubers, and everyone in between. Everyone has a story to tell, and I'm here to tell you theirs. Hello everyone, it's Stephanie and I'm back with a new story for you. I want to apologize if I don't sound as upbeat or cheerful today. I had neck surgery a few years ago to fuse three vertebrae together and occasionally I have pain issues. I'm in physical therapy to help manage it, but the left side of my neck and up to my jaw is killing me right now and I'm barely dulling it with Tylenol. But I still wanted to bring you this story. Also, I won't be releasing an episode next week because I'm going to be going on vacation with my kids. I work 40 to 50 hours a week on top of working on this podcast, and I just want to enjoy the time I have with them. We have a beachfront hotel, and I am looking forward to relaxing on my balcony, looking at the waves, and maybe reading a book. I originally wanted to bring to you the story of Tallulah Bankhead and the force of nature she is, but after getting through three pages of writing, I just wasn't happy with how it was turning out. I decided to wait, and I'll bring that to you when I get back from vacation. It'll give me some time to work it out a little better so it comes out more cohesive for you. So far, she seems like my 1900 spirit animal, and I need to make sure that I give it justice. So I'm going to talk to you today about concert disasters. I'm sure most of you remember the Astroworld incident and the shooting at Ariana Grande's concert, which I'll probably talk about if I decide to do a part two or if there's enough information on these, they might just be their own episode. But it goes to show you that you never really know what can happen when you're getting ready to watch your favorite band or musicians perform. Will it be a night to remember from the amazing performance put on? Or will it be a night to remember due to a tragic event? Most of the time you go and make incredible memories with your friends and family, but in today's stories, it will be memories of what went wrong that will live forever. The fates love to create terrible things to happen in our lives, or at least that's what I tell myself but I hope you're ready as we go through a few concerts that should have created happy memories, but instead put their patrons through a nightmare. Have you ever been super excited to know that a band you love is reuniting and performing near you? I'm sure that's how fans were feeling upon the announcement that the band Great White was reuniting and going on tour. Great White had their peak mainstream success in the late 80s and early 90s. They were considered a heavy metal band that started making music in 1977. They would go through many changes with their band members before signing with EMI and releasing their debut album in 1984. They began touring with bands like White Snake, opening for Judas Priest, and supported Kiss. They would release their next album, Shot in the Dark, with Capitol Records in 1986. The third album was called Once Bitten and would launch them to the mainstream, hitting platinum status in April of 1988. They would go on tour that year and perform with Twisted Sister, White Snake, Iron Maiden, and Guns N' Roses, among many other popular metal bands of the time. They followed up with Twice Shy that would be certified platinum in July of 1989. 
they would remain successful going on tours, performing at festivals, and release more albums with Capitol Records, Zoo Records, and Imago Records until they started to go their separate ways in 2000 and ultimately disbanded in November of 2001. Unable to handle his new irrelevancy, Jack Russell, original member and vocalist, reached out to guitarist Mark Kendall about playing some dates with Russell's band. They would use the name Jack Russell's Great White, and they would play mostly the hit songs from Great White with some of his solo music that Russell had worked on since the split. On February 20th, 2003, they were set to perform at the Station Nightclub in West Warwick, Rhode Island. 462 people were packed into this nightclub to watch them perform. And that happened to be a big problem. Now, why is that, you ask? The licensed capacity for the club was 404, so that's almost 60 people too many. The next problem was that the club's acoustic foam was installed in two layers and not exactly fire retardant. Highly flammable urethane foam was on top of a less flammable polyethylene foam. The bottom layer was harder to ignite, but put off much more heat if it did. And with a highly flammable layer on top, it was a recipe for disaster. The icing on the cake is that the polyurethane foam when on fire releases opaque dark smoke along with deadly levels of carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide gases. Inhaling just two to three times of this smoke can cause you to lose consciousness and then ultimately die by internal suffocation. That sounds like a terrible way to go, but hopefully you aren't suffering since you're technically unconscious. Back to what happened. The band is playing Desert Moon, and the pyrotechnics are set off by tour manager Daniel Beichel. They had four gerbs set up, which are just pyrotechnics that spray sparks 15 feet into the air for about 15 seconds. The two on the outside were set at 45-degree angles, and when the sparks reached the highly flammable acoustic foam, it did what something highly flammable would do. It caught on fire. It took only 20 seconds for the flames to reach the ceiling, and smoke started to billow down. Jack Russell was heard calmly saying, wow, that's not good. And in less than a minute, the stage was engulfed in flames. The band and their entourage of people fled out the west exit that was by the stage, while most of the patrons fled towards the entrance, even though there were three other exits. Let me explain to you why most of them didn't go out the other exit doors. If you look at the floor plan for the nightclub, the exit the band went out was right next to the stage. And let's be honest, no one's going to be running towards the fire to get to an exit to get out if they can avoid it. Most people are going to run away, and they will remember the way they came in. When looking at the floor plans, the stage is in the top right, dance floor is in the front, below the dance floor is a sunroom, and to the left of the sunroom is a hallway leading to the front door. To the left of the hallway is the main bar with an exit on the far wall. The main bar area is mostly blocked off by the hallway leading to the front entrance. If you aren't in the main bar area, you probably wouldn't have seen the exit to go out of it. Above the bar was the kitchen, which had an exit that of course only the staff would have been able to see. Which leads to the question, did the staff try to direct people towards the kitchen or bar exits to relieve the pressure going out the front door? Now the hallway where most people tried to flee from was pretty narrow. The problem is you get hundreds of people rushing towards a hallway and what's going to happen? It gets blocked up. You go from a large open space to a cramped narrow hallway and everyone is pushing each other out of the way in a panic to save their life, which is understandable, but that's how people get crushed to death. 100 people died and half of the survivors had injuries from burns, smoke inhalation, thermal trauma, and or crushing. Amongst the dead was the band's lead guitarist and the show's MC DJ Mike the Dr. Gonsalves. 
It is believed that they were trying to salvage equipment and succumb to smoke inhalation before they could escape. Remember when I asked if the staff had tried to get people to the other exits, which probably could have saved more lives? Well, some of the survivors said a bouncer turned them away from the stage exit, stating it was for the band only. I'm sorry, but the building is on fire and no one is trying to fangirl their way out of the back to meet the band. They are trying not to die. In a sense of irony, the beginning of the fire was caught on camera by a cameraman doing a safety piece from inside the club for a local news station. The news reporter doing the story was none other than a part owner of the club. Upon investigation, it was discovered that a sprinkler system could have given enough time for everyone to escape the building. The club didn't have one installed as the owners were under the assumption that they were exempt from the sprinkler system requirements. However, since changing it from a restaurant to a nightclub, that exemption was no longer valid. And in fact, it was legally required to have one installed. There was also debate on the permission given for the pyrotechnics. The band stated that they were given permission to use them, and of course the owners denied giving it. I'm sure they did deny it, as their makeshift soundproofing wasn't exactly on the list of approved materials. On December 9, 2003, Jeffrey and Michael Dedurian, who were brothers and the club owners, along with the band's manager, Daniel Beichel, were charged with 200 counts of involuntary manslaughter. It was two counts per death, as it was to be decided if it was criminal negligence manslaughter or misdemeanor manslaughter. The brothers would initially plead not guilty, but to avoid trial on September 21, 2006, they would announce a no-contest plea instead. Michael received 15 years, with four years to serve, 11 suspended, plus three years on probation. He was released early for good behavior in June of 2009. Jeffrey only received 500 hours of community service, which seems a little unreasonable to me as 100 people died in his club. However, the judge explained that Michael received a harsher punishment because he purchased and installed the flammable foam while his brother was uninvolved in that. They were also fined $1.07 million for failing to carry workers' compensation insurance for their employees, and four of their employees had died. How do you not have workers' compensation insurance? If they got hurt performing their job, are they just supposed to live without any pay or guarantee that they have a job to go back to? Not only that, but they now have to live with PTSD, so they all deserve that money to help with their recovery and as some type of compensation for the families of those who died. The band's manager received the same 15-year sentence, four to serve, 11 suspended, and three years probation as he decided to plead guilty on February 7, 2006. He said he pled guilty because he wanted this to be over and to bring peace. He made an incredibly touching statement apologizing for his role in the deaths and stated he couldn't forgive himself for what happened and doesn't expect anyone else to either. He seemed truly remorseful for the accident and many of the family members of those who lost someone expressed forgiveness towards him. He was the only one who had the balls to take any fault for this accident, and I think that made a big difference for those people along with his heartfelt apology. He was ultimately released on good behavior in March of 2008, as they didn't feel like there was a risk of him reoffending. If he was given the okay to use pyrotechnics, then he did nothing wrong, but at the same time, he was the only person to say, I'm sorry. The aftermath was a lot of civil lawsuits, and not just by the families of the dead and the victims. The Jack Russell Tour Group offered a million dollars in a settlement to survivors and victims, which was the maximum under their insurance. The club owners offered to settle for $813,000, which was covered by their insurance plan due to bankruptcy protection from lawsuits. The state and town paid out $10 million in a settlement. The company that made the foam, Sealed Air Corporation, paid out $25 million. 
The news station that Jeffrey worked for paid out $30 million as it was claimed that the video journalist was blocking escape and did not help people exit. JBL speakers settled out of court to pay $815,000 under the claim that their speakers had flammable foam inside, but they do not claim any wrongdoing. And I get that. It was the walls that caused the problem, not the speakers, but oh well, get that money, I guess. Anheuser-Busch offered $5 million and their distributor offered $16 million. Home Depot and Polar Industries, who made the insulation, made a settlement offer for $5 million. The radio station that promoted the show and whose MC died paid out $22 million. And lastly, American Foam Corporation, who sold the insulation, paid $6.3 million. When the band resumed touring, they said a prayer for the victims before every show and donated a portion of the profits to a fund for the victims. It would be four years before they could perform that song again. The site was cleared and replaced with crosses for the people who lost their lives. It was eventually turned into Station Fire Memorial Park in 2017. And this is the tragic story of the Station Nightclub fire that cost 100 people their lives and many others injury and lifelong trauma. When you are going to see your favorite band perform an outdoor concert, do you go rain or shine? Most people might brush off a chance of rain because they paid good money to get these tickets. The weatherman isn't always right anyway, so maybe you'll luck out and nothing will happen. I'm sure that's what people were hoping for when they went to the Indiana State Fair to see Sugarland on August 13, 2011. If you're not familiar, Sugarland is a country duo that started off in Atlanta, Georgia. They took off in 2004 and have been going strong ever since. Some of their hit songs are Something More, Want To, stay, and stuck like glue, which I'm pretty sure I've had stuck in my head on more than one occasion. That night, their opening act was Sarah Bareilles, who is a pop artist most known for King of Anything and Love Song. I love all types of music, and I probably still know all the words to their most popular songs. I can only imagine the excitement of being able to see them perform. Before anything went sideways, Sarah Bareilles would perform her set and safely evacuate the stage. Sugarland was going to be taking the stage at about 8.50 p.m., so the stage was empty while they warmed up. A thunderstorm was on its way, but it wasn't reported as hitting until possibly 9.15 p.m. Throughout the day, the State Fair personnel were receiving weather updates and following the impending storm. They needed to make sure when it would hit and then to decide how to proceed. The executive director, Cindy Hoy, held a meeting at about 8 p.m. to discuss the effect of the forecast on the potential start time for the Sugarland show. She felt it was best to delay the show until the weather had passed. The managers for Sugarland didn't know that there was a chance of lightning, wind, and hail. They were under the assumption it was just rain, so they said they would proceed as expected and stop the show only if the weather worsened. Cindy Hoy accepted their decision as she ultimately thought that they had the final say even if she didn't feel it was the right decision. State Police Captain Brad Weaver caught up with her at about 8.30 p.m. and recommended that they cancel the show for safety reasons and put together an evacuation plan. At 8.39 p.m., the National Weather Service issued a severe thunderstorm warning with predictions of one-inch hail and winds over 60 miles an hour, but still expected the arrival time to be at 9.15 p.m. At 8.40, she gave the evacuation plan message to the announcer to relate to the fans in attendance so they would be prepared should the storm roll in with a vengeance and they need to evacuate. Now where I live, if they say severe thunderstorm, it's usually followed by a chance of a tornado. My children have been locked down in school for hours after they should have been home and had many touchdown near our home from what was supposed to be just a thunderstorm. I looked at some videos on YouTube surrounding the event. 
And one person had even posted their pictures, and you can see it go from bright skies to dark, ominous gray. Just after the first announcement was given, the police captain confronted Cindy and reiterated that the show should be canceled. She agreed, but before she could reach the stage to tell everyone to evacuate for their safety, a gust of wind at almost 60 miles an hour hit the stage structure, and the temporary roof collapsed at 8.49 p.m. The collapse killed seven people and injured 58 others. The investigation of the collapse was performed by the same company who investigated the collapse of the World Trade Center on 9-11 and the Interstate 35 West Bridge collapse. They found that it was due to the inadequate capacity of the lateral load resisting system, which was comprised of guy lines connected to concrete jersey barrier ballasts. Now, if you're like me the first time I read this, you're sitting there going, what the heck does that even mean? And I'm right there with you. I had to look up what this stuff meant. So I'm going to try to explain it to you the best way that I can. So we see Jersey barriers all the time. They are the concrete structures on the side of the highway. Think of what separates the on-ramp from the highway before merging, sitting in between north and south lanes, or even when there is a significant embankment on the side of the road. The easiest way to describe a guy line is to think of a boat There are cables and ropes that add stability to a freestanding structure. So if you think about like old time pirate ships with a large mast that are supported by ropes on both sides that provide tension to keep it standing up. So you have this roof structure that is supported by cables attached to concrete blocks. The concrete barriers were not fixed in place and only friction and their own weight was what kept them from moving. They were able to resist winds ranging from 25 to 43 miles an hour, depending on wind direction. The building code required the structure to be able to withstand 68 miles an hour winds, which, if it was built to code, would have prevented the deaths and injuries. The guy lines were synthetic webbing ratchet straps and wire ropes, so even if the barriers were fixed in place, the lines wouldn't have been able to support the structure. And the last problem was the plates that the lines attached to had insufficient strength and would have failed anyway. So the moral of this long, confusing tale is that the structure was not built to code, which allowed the winds to blow it down. There is a video of the collapse. It's in slow motion. The structure starts to rotate to the left as the wind hits it before it begins to fall. And you can see the people in the front row turning to run as the roof is falling towards them. I can only imagine the terror that they felt in that moment watching that roof and structure just coming towards them and there's nowhere really for them to go but to try to get away fast enough behind them. Aside from the obvious faults of the James Thomas Engineering Company and the design and analysis of the structure, the state fair officials were determined to have lacked in preparedness for the event. They had some steps for an emergency, but nothing adequate for the size of the event and lacked formal protocols for delaying postponing, or canceling a production. This was evident by her assumption that the band manager would decide if it was safe to go on with the impending storm or not. Ultimately, several lawsuits were filed, and it was settled for $50 million in damages. The state of Indiana paid $11 million, and Live Nation and Sugarland paid the other $39 million. Mid-America Sound Corp., who billed the stage and leased it to the fair, were fined $63,000 for what were three known violations. The security company, who was also involved in the lawsuit, was dismissed as they were not at fault for the incident and had even lost a member of their own company in the collapse. Do I think that Sugarland should have had to pay? No. But it was the manager who said they should go on with the show and didn't bother to look at the actual forecast. All you have to do is hit refresh on your weather app on your cell phone and you would have been able to see what was coming. 
I do think the company who designed and built the structure are the most at fault, along with the Indiana State Fair Commission, as they neglected to shut down the show, knowing a severe thunderstorm is on the way. It was an outdoor concert, and every patron of the show would have been caught in the weather even if it hadn't collapsed. The senseless tragedy is known as the Indiana State Fair stage collapse, and I'm sure it's used as a reference on what not to do. The last story I'll bring to you is the Love Parade disaster, which happened on July 24, 2010. The Love Parade was a free electronic dance music festival that took place in Duisburg, North Rhine-Westphalia, Germany. This music festival had originated in 1989 in Berlin and would feature multiple stages, floats with music, DJs, and dancers moving throughout the audience. I know it's not technically a concert, but a music festival still fits into this category since you are there to see musical performances. This year was the first time that the Love Parade would be held in a closed-off area. They were expecting between 200,000 and 1.4 million people to attend and had 3,200 officers on hand. First off, that's a huge range of people to expect, but since it was free, there wasn't exactly ticket sales to go off of for attendance. The parade was initially that, a parade through Berlin, but this year they were holding it on the grounds of a former freight station. The area had a max capacity of 250,000 people, and they were anticipating upwards of 1 million based on previous year's attendees. So make that make sense. You know a million people will want to come to the festival, and instead of making it a parade or making it in an open space like before, you close it off in an area that is obviously too small for the amount of people who may be coming. One of the performers even said that he was concerned that there was going to be a problem before anything even happened. He knew it wasn't planned out right. The way into the festival was from a 260-yard tunnel from the east and a few underpasses from the west. They would converge into a ramp that would be the only entrance and exit point of the festival. They were supposed to begin the festival at 11, but had kept attendees waiting outside the entrance until 12. What followed is debated, but regardless, people died. The entrance to the ramp was like a T-shape, with people coming from the left and coming from the right, and they converged in the middle to go up. Now, that point where you go up is also where you would come down to exit. So if you were in that area, there was really nowhere for you to go if you wanted to leave, especially when you had crowds of people coming in waiting to go in. There were so many people trying to get into that area and not accepting that they couldn't move forward, they attempted to force their way through. People were trying to escape the crowded tunnel by a nearby staircase and were falling, taking other people with them. At first, they tried to blame the deaths that happened on them falling from the staircase but autopsies showed that all the fatalities were due to crushed rib cages. The exits were blocked, and even though police were telling new arrivals to turn back, they continued to pile in and would eventually crush 21 people to death, 13 women and 8 men aged 18 to 38. The police radios weren't working properly, and there was no rescue strategy in place, so they were trying to manage the crush on the fly. Maybe if they had let people in on time, it wouldn't have happened. Or maybe they could have used a space capable of handling the capacity of people expected to attend. They tried to continue on with the festival that day as bodies were collected off the ground, only to cancel it permanently the next day. They didn't want to cause any more deaths by trying to mass evacuate the people already there, which is understandable, but seriously, people were crushed to death. Get yourself together and create an evacuation plan and exercise some crowd control. How are you still going to hold a festival that day when you have people that just died? There was an attempt at a criminal trial against those who organized the event, but nothing came of it. They waited seven years to start a trial, 
and in 2020, they dismissed the case. They decided the area for the Love Parade was not suitable, but didn't prosecute any of the 10 defendants. Four staff members from the event company Lopevent and six city officials were defendants in the case, but it was difficult to assess the individual levels of guilt for each defendant. It was dismissed because of the coronavirus and the fact that the 10-year statute of limitations was about to be reached. Unlike my other stories, no one will have to own up to their mistakes and no one will be paying out any compensation for the lives lost. It does bring a fascinating phenomenon to light, though, as crowd-crushing deaths is a common cause of deaths at live events. It's similar to what we call herd behavior as well. It's easy to do what everyone else is and push forward even though you know there's no room. I've seen stories where people rushed towards a closed exit and crushed the people to death against locked doors. In one place, crowds made their own exit, and instead of helping people up that tripped over the downed barrier, they basically stomped them to death. These weren't even from a disaster, it was just impatience. A herd mentality is just going along with the rest of the people in the crowd, and it can become incredibly dangerous for you and those around you. It's something to keep in mind and think about the next time you're in a crowded area. Be aware, be patient, and be safe. I hope you've enjoyed these stories on concert disasters and it's given you something to think about. If you have any suggestions for future stories or you want to share a story with me, you can send it to beyondtheentertainmentpod at gmail.com. Give me a follow on Instagram at staylor underscore BTE or you can find me on Twitter at BTE underscore pod. And before I go, I just wanted to say happy Pride Month. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Beyond the Entertainment.